My name is Michael McCarty, and I want to start off by painting you a picture. I want you to envision a man in his early 40s. He's married to a beautiful woman. His children, by all accounts, look happy and healthy. Professionally, he looks successful. Physically, he looks in good shape. But look closer. He looks adrift. He appears to be a man spiritually lost. And I was. That's why I wasn't ready for the news. I wasn't spiritually prepared for the news that I received when I was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. I remember being at MD Anderson, surrounded by the white coats, when the surgeon told me I was inoperable. He explained to me that the cancer started in the upper lobe of the right lung, spread throughout, across my chest, into my lymph system. I even had a tumor wrap itself around my pulmonary artery. In his words, I was too far gone. There I was, 42, and my life was being measured in months, not years. My prognosis grim, my life expectancy, just 18 months. And all I could think about was my wife, Wendy, who was going to have to go on without me and my three young children, Henry, Adeline, and Jack, were going to grow up without a father. And I was angry. I remember the sleepless nights, sitting up, just standing there, staring at my Bible, knowing that there were answers there, but not knowing where to begin. And one night I stayed up all night, just yelling at God, Lord, why me? Why me? And as dawn drew near, I got on my knees and prayed, Lord, I need help. And God answers prayers. Not in a booming voice, but this time with a ding on my phone as a friend emailed me. He wrote, I'm traveling, but my father-in-law's in town. He wants to share his story with you and meet with you. And I was so depressed and so lost, I was willing to meet a man I did not know, had never seen before in all places at Tim Hortons. His name was Ray. But I now call him Clarence, like the angel from A Wonderful Life. When I met with Clarence, he shared his cancer story. But more importantly, he told me God loved me, that God had a plan, that God made promises and he doesn't break them. Rely on his word, he said. Lean in to him. And then he pointed to Psalms 103, verse 15. And when he read it, all I heard was, Praise the Lord who forgives your sins, who heals your diseases, who renews your youth like the eagles. And then Clarence prayed. He prayed, and I cried. I cried not because I was sad, because I felt loved. I wasn't alone anymore, and for the first time in weeks, I had hope. And over the five years plus since my diagnosis, I've learned to rely on God's strength, to lean into him. For me, it's the only way to march forward. But it, take, it takes practice. And with practice, I've learned to lean into God so far that I feel like I'm going to tip over, and it's at that point God catches me, and he props me up. It takes faith. It's all about faith. But even with faith, my journey has not been easy. In 2014, they gave me six months to live as the cancer advanced into the left lung and to my spine and even to my eyes where they told me I was likely to go blind. In 2015, I almost died. 
I was in the ICU downstate. After several days, my wife thought it was safe enough to go to the hotel to get some rest, and she got that call. Come back. Your husband may not make it through the night. I don't remember much about my 30-plus day stay in the ICU. I remember being prayed over. I remember waking up, and when I was finally strong enough to be released from the hospital, I told the surgeon, thank you for saving my life. She looked at me and said, Michael, it wasn't me. It was God's grace. Doctors don't say that stuff, but she did. It was God's grace. And time and time again, I've witnessed God's grace. In 2016, I developed 17 brain tumors. I was on vacation when the doctor called. He told me, Michael, your tumors are bleeding. You're at a high risk of stroke, if not worse. I prayed and prayed on a course of treatment. I picked a novel approach with my doctor's approval. And after my first scan, all 17 tumors were gone. God's grace. I tell you this story. Why? Because I want you to know that you can rely on God's strength and that by leaning into him, you can endure and overcome any obstacle. Your journey may not be easy. I'm still in treatment. No one's promised me a cure, but I can stand here today and tell you (coughs) that I see my cancer as a blessing, a gift. (coughs) Because of cancer, I've I have a relationship with Jesus. I've learned the power of prayer. I get to spread God's word to other cancer survivors. I'm a better father and husband. And because of cancer, I've learned that every day is a good day. I want to I leave you with a verse I know you know well and I cite every day. Be strong, courageous, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Thank you for letting me share, and God bless. Okay, let's uh, pray for Mike here. Father, thank you uh, for Mike. Thank you that you have your hand on him. And Father God, even in his struggles, you are there. And Father God, thank you for sparing his life since diagnosis now almost, it looks like, five years. And Father God, thank you for making those uh, brain tumors disappear. And Father, you have not guaranteed us anything. Nevertheless, you are with us in our struggles that you walk with us. When we are weak, you are strong. Your presence is strong in our midst. And Father God, I commit Mike to you and and the days and months and years to come that you would continue to walk with him and use his testimony to bring others to Christ and also give glory and honor and praise to your name. I pray for his wife and children as well. Be with them. I'm sure that there is anxiety each and every day. And Father God, help them to see you. Open their minds to understand you. Open their hearts to accept what you have given them. And Father God, I pray that you will be with the McCarty family all day, each and every day. What a powerful statement 
that each day is a blessing. Each day is a new day. Each day is an opportunity to live for you. And I pray that you will enable Mike to live that way for you and also his family as well. Thank you for the privilege that we get to hear the story and have him as part of our congregation as well. So be with him and his family, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Thanks. Give him another round of applause, please. Wow. I have heard parts of those stories, but this is the first time hearing it whole. And what a powerful statement that is. And each and every day, it's a good day. And God has given us to live and to bring honor and glory to your great name. Good morning, I'm Pastor David. And as you know, the past month or so, perhaps a couple of months, we have been walking through the book of Philippians, the New Testament book of Philippians, which is the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi at the time, now almost 2,000 plus years ago. And today we are coming to chapter 4. So we have covered about three chapters. It's the, chapter 4 is really the last one. And I hope, here's the message that I want to communicate as I start, that you are getting this feeling that Philippian church was a very strong church. It was a very, very strong church at the time. For example, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we read this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. There's a fantastic relationship between the Apostle Paul and this particular church because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is a church that has partnered with the Apostle Paul from the first day until now. That was a very long time. Second, the Apostle Paul and the Philippian church were close as they knew each other at the heart level. For example, in verse 7 we read this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, it was this heart-level knowledge that enabled the Philippian church to meet the Apostle Paul's need time and time again, even when they did not know what his needs were, including when he was in prison. Have you ever, ever met a person's need like that? That they'd never said anything to you, but you knew what they need, what they need, and therefore you were able to meet it. That's heart level knowledge between the two people. Perhaps it happens between husband and wife. Perhaps it happens between two friends. But that's the kind of knowledge this particular church had of Paul. The third thing is that they sent one of their best, Epaphroditus, to visit and serve him in prison. Again, remember, in those days, the prisons were unlike the modern-day prisons. There were no TVs, there was no food, there was no bedding, there was no bedsheets, nothing. If relatives or friends did not bring you food, you went hungry. If relatives or friends did not bring you a blanket, you were cold. 
And so they sent their very best, Epaphroditus, to care for him. Again, from Philippi to Rome is where Apostle Paul was believed to have been in prison as he wrote this, this particular letter. That was a long time, a long way away in the days when there was no aeroplanes. Okay? And so, for example, in verses chapter 2, verse 25 through 30, this is what we read. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and a messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard that he was ill. You see, what happened was he took this long journey And then got there, somewhere along the way, he had got this particular illness which almost killed him. That's how much this particular church loved him. And that's how much Epaphroditus loved him. And therefore, he was willing to take this particular long trip. Indeed, he was still near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. It is like, you know, today we send, you know, uh, people to our missionary location so that they could have fellowship. They could communicate what's happening in the church. They could hear from them, love on them, you know, things of that kind. Fourth, the Philippian church gave money again and again to the Apostle Paul, as we read in chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 and following. Here's what you read. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me. You see, the Epaphroditus actually took gifts from the church to the Apostle Paul who was in prison at the time. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see the close relationship? You see how strong this particular church was in supporting a missionary like the Apostle Paul, whom they have sent? The Philippian church gave money out of concerned and profound sense of partnership. They actually gave it a time when it was impossible or not possible for them to know of Paul's actual needs. That's heart level knowledge. And here's the fifth one. The Philippian church prayed for and with Paul. This is not any kind of bless the missionary prayer. This is actually praying for the missionary and also praying with the missionary for their ambitions and goals and all of those different things. And see this in Philippians chapter 1 verse 18 and following. Yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He is in prison and he feels the prayer prayed by this church. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that, will, that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life 
or by death. This is the church that prayed for and with Paul. Paul said that his life was depending on their prayers. No doubt they were making prayer requests to, for Paul to be released from prison. But they were also praying along with Paul's hopes and ambitions. That he will not be ashamed at all. But that with full courage now as always. Christ will be honored in his body. Whether in his life or in his death. It is for these reasons. I want us to get the feel for that this was a very, very strong church. That supported the Apostle Paul. There was a close relationship. There was joy when they speak for one another. And they prayed for and with one another. And they supported one another in this relationship. Yet in the midst of all of that. They had a problem. A strong church. Had a problem. Lack of unity within the church and conflict at every turn. That's the problem. A strong church was not united and there was conflict everywhere. Now the Apostle Paul had raised this issue twice already in this letter to the Philippian church. The first time he raises in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to this very carefully here. And I have underlined something for you. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Here it is. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. In other words, the Philippian church was facing opposition from the outside, and, and, and there's conflict within, and Paul is saying to them, hey, unless you are united, you have no way to fight the opposition that is coming from the outside. And therefore, stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, and strive side by side with each other for the gospel. It's the only way that you're going to fight the opposition that comes from the outside. The second time Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, perhaps it's 1 through 11. This is a sermon that I preached last time here when I stood here. The Apostle Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, and here it is, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And then he goes on to provide Christ as an example and says, have the mind of Christ as you deal with one another. Now here in chapter 4, he revisits the issue for the third time. 
This time, he actually names two people who are in conflict. What would you think if, we, if I stand here and name people who are in conflict with one another? It wouldn't go well, wouldn't it? But that's what Paul does in chapter 4. So that's where we are going to start here. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And we will look at verses 2 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. And if you're using the church Bible, sometimes we call this the blue Bible. And you will find that on page 1250. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. So here it is. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Those are the two people in conflict at the church. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. He's asking somebody else in the church, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, two prominent members of the Philippian church, Iodia and Syntyche, are in conflict with one another. But notice this, their names are in the book of life. Which means they are born again believers. Furthermore, both of them have labored side by side with Paul for a long time. which gives the impression they are two mature believers in the church. Perhaps even leaders. Even so, born-again, mature, perhaps leaders are in conflict with one another. It is a strong church, all right, but there is conflict within But as an encouragement, this is what I want to tell you. What this means is that conflict is inevitable. Whether you are a brand new believer or a mature believer. Whether you are a leader or a servant. Because we are still fallen human beings, sinful human beings, saved by grace. 
Nobody, let me, let me make this bold statement, nobody is immune from it. That includes me, and that includes all of us. So take heart of, if you have had conflicts in the past, or are in conflict with someone right now, take heart. Don't be anxious. Don't be angry. Don't be upset. There's nothing wrong with you. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. But the question always is, what do we do with the conflict? What do we do with the conflict? You see, here at the Philippian church, the conflict has begun to permeate the church that people have become anxious, people are not rejoicing. That's why Paul says, rejoice. I say to you again, rejoice. And the people are not being reasonable with one another. Therefore, the apostle Paul calls another another believer in the church, whom he calls true companion, to mediate this conflict. That is to help these women move from their conflict to conflict resolution. So that's what we want to look at. How do we move? Conflict is inevitable. It will happen. But how do we move from conflict to conflict resolution is the subject of this sermon. So the first one, again, these ideas may not be earth-shattering, but regardless, take a look at this. The first thing is to look upward to God. And I find that in verses 4 through 7. The apostle writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, these verses tell us that because of the conflict between these two prominent members in the church, possibly leaders of the church, Iodia and Syntyche, people are walking on eggshells. They know it. It's happening. Nobody wants to talk to one another, but they're walking on eggshells. People are anxious. He says here, do not be anxious about anything, Paul says. Instead, Paul says, pray. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. That's looking upward to God. And here's the other thing that I discovered in this passage as I studied deeper and deeper is that, you know, pray until God's peace guards your hearts and minds. That's the outcome. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, you know, raise your prayer request to God and pray until the peace of God guard your hearts and your minds. 
Have you ever done that in terms of conflict? That you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed until you are absolutely sure the peace of God is guarding your heart and your mind. Do you want to move from conflict to conflict resolution? Then look upward to God. He will move you from anxiety, because that's what it says, do not be anxious, to prayer and then to peace. Until God's peace guards your hearts and your minds, you and I are not ready for peace with one another. How about that? Do you believe that? That puts a completely different twist on conflict resolution. Think about some of your conflicts. How many of you had sent a nasty email to a person you are in conflict with before you looked up to God? How many of you have walked into another person's office and confronted him or her before allowing God to move you from anxiety to prayer to peace? Those confrontations didn't work very well, did they? See, that's the lesson here. Are you in conflict? Am I in conflict? Look up to God until God moves us from anxiety to prayer to peace. Then we are ready to go and have a conversation with the other and to resolve the conflict. So I want to be bold in even saying this. Don't even try to talk with the other person until that happens to you. That you have looked up and God has moved you from anxiety to prayer and to peace. By the way, some of these are new concepts for me. I have never studied this, this particular passage this deep. Now at this point, a question can be asked. How would we know God's peace is guarding our hearts and our minds? It's easy to say until God's peace you know, guards, guards our hearts and our minds. But how would we know that God's peace is guarding our hearts and our minds? Would you know it? Now in verse 5, we see a word. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The word reasonableness. You see, the word reasonableness, the Greek word that is used, means several different things. I, I, I have put all of those up on the screen for you. Take a look at this. Again, you know, you see a Greek word and you're trying to come up with an English word. They could have come up with any of these things, but they chose reasonableness. Reasonable people are not quarrelsome. They are not looking for a fight as they attempt to resolve the conflict. They do not speak, speak evil of the other, even behind their backs when they are not looking. Then if this happened, then we know the peace of God has got hold of our hearts and our minds. 
Here's another one. Instead, the, the people who have been got hold of this peace of God that surpasses all understanding, they are gentle, they are gracious, they are considerate that they approach the, the, the person that they are in conflict with. They are not trying to win their argument. Instead, they are fair and equitable in their approach to conflict resolution. They are ready to own their part in the conflict and look for win-win situation. Not lose-win or win-lose situations. And they are forbearing. That is, as they try to resolve the conflict, ready to even carry the burden of the other themselves. So I said, you know, look up to God until God moves you and I from anxiety, there might be fear, there might be anger, all of those feelings, from that to prayer and then to peace. And how do you determine that we have our, our hearts and our minds have been guarded by, it's being guarded by the, the peace of God? These things, we are ready for these things. And there's one other thing that I would say. In times of conflict, when we are angry or anxious, we may find it difficult to look up to God and pray. Because you're angry, you're frustrated, you're anxious, whatever. That's the, la- the prayer is the last thing. Looking upward to God is the last thing that you want to do. But again in verse 5, the apostle writes, apostle knows this and he writes, the Lord is at hand. Regardless of how we may feel, God is near. Whether we are feeling angry, God is near. Whether we are feeling anxious, God is near. Whether we are feeling frustrated, God is still near. So draw near to God and allow him to move you through this process from anxiety to prayer to peace. And I want to add to reasonableness and the end result is rejoicing. That's the process of looking up to God in the midst of conflict. Look upward to God and allow him to move from anxiety to prayer to peace to reasonableness and the end result is rejoicing. That's why the apostle Paul says, you know, he knows there is anxiety. So he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. So that's the first point. If we want to move conflict to conflict resolution, we look up to God And allow him to move us through this particular process. Second, inward, look inward within yourself. Look inward within yourself. Now I find this in verses 8 and 9. I am going to come back to that. But let me suggest something to you. Have you ever wondered why... If you are in a conflict, that conflict happened in the first place. Do you pause time to think about this? 
Perhaps there are several reasons. But this morning, though, I do want to give us a model. I like pictures, and I like to draw them so that every time I read a book, I try to draw a picture and put all of those points. And here's a model that I have found that, that has been very useful to me. It comes from a book called Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. So let, let me walk you through this. Now, somebody says something, and you hear it. Somebody does something, and you see it. So you see or, and or hear. And, and then you tell yourself a story. Depending on the type of story that you tell yourself, you feel a certain way, and therefore based on your feeling, you act a certain way. So if you told yourself a positive story, you are feeling good about it, and therefore you act. Well, but if you told yourself a negative story after seeing and hearing what the other person had said or what the other person has done, if you tell yourself a negative story, you feel anxious, angry, frustrated, whatever else, and therefore you act in that manner, and there's your conflict. Now, over the next few slides, I'm going to walk you through some of these things in, in some kind of a rapid fire here, so stay with me. In one of the books, it says, at the heart, the problem isn't our actions. It is our thinking. You see, if he had told the right story, we will right in the right we feel the right way and therefore they act the right way and therefore what we have to do is to walk this path back and catch us that's where we tell the story ourselves so at the heart the problem is centered in our actions actions come later but it is in our thinking the story that we tell ourselves Here's the other one. We are selective in what we see and hear. All of us are, myself included. We are always selective. We are selective hearers and we are selective seers. We look for information to support our view and give that information the most favorable interpretation. Do you agree? And our conclusions reflect self interest. Here's another one. We are hurt by what the other person did, so we assume they intended to hurt us. That may or may not be true. We assume we know the intentions of the other, but in reality, we don't. Very often, our assumptions are wrong. We assume bad intention and then associate it with bad character of the other. These are the things that lead to the, the tell story aspect of it. Next slide, please. This comes from uh, the Harvard negotiation project called the Difficult Conversations. We are only aware of the things that are on the left side. We are aware of, I'm aware of my intention. Other person's impact on me. Fair enough. I was hurt by it. And I know my intentions. 
but we are not i am not aware of other person's intention we have no idea but the other person intended when he when he or she he she said or did something and my impact on the other person those so the ones on the left we are aware and the ones on the right we are not aware so wouldn't it be better to find out rather than coming to conclusions based on our selective hearing and listening here's another one in our assumptions we treat ourselves more charitably and assume the worst about the other so we blame the other we think ours is the truth and the other is the problem then how we interpret what we see and hear is influenced by our past experiences our past experiences often develop into rules by which we live our lives this is why it's very important the type of story in that particular era tell a story when we see and hear what kind of story that we tell ourselves determines how we feel and therefore how we act and what type of story that we tell is affected by all of these things that i have told you and we need to be aware of that now in light of all that i have said let's look at verses 8 through 9 and see if that makes sense finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there is any excellence if there is anything worthy of praise think about these things what do you think that apostle paul is trying to do he's trying to change our thinking so that we would tell a different story when we hear and see something do- that is done to us but you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the god of peace will be with you at the heart of the problem isn't in our actions it is in our thinking Therefore the apostle Paul asked us to change the way we think by filling our hearts and minds with the things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent and worthy of praise. You see there's a story story it's a very old one. I remember reading this back in 1980s but it has still stuck with me. There was a man in a small village who was nasty. Nobody liked him. One day he died. 
And so, you know, for the sake, it's a small town. Everybody knew each other. So they went and they're, you know, saying bad things about him and all of that. And suddenly, there was a man walks in. And this man also lived in that community. But he never spoke anything negative about another person in his life. So everybody's looking at him and saying, what is he going to say? What is he going to say? This is a terrible guy. We all know it. So all eyes were on him. And he walks over to the casket. Leans over. Looks at him, the, the body very carefully and lifts his head and says, doesn't he have good teeth? You see, we move from conflict to conflict resolution by looking upward to God and inward within ourselves. In looking upward to God, allow God to move you from anxiety to prayer to peace to reasonableness and finally to rejoicing. In looking inward within ourselves, change the way we tell the story to ourselves. Because at the heart, the problem isn't in our actions. It's in our thinking. I hope you find this useful to you as you deal with conflicts. Perhaps in the future or the ones that you are going through right now. May the Lord help you to move from conflict to conflict resolution. In all situations. Because that's what honors God in and through our lives. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are indeed sinful human beings saved by the grace of God. We stumble and fall and we hurt others. We are hurt by others. But help us. Help us through the word of God what we saw this morning. So that we would indeed move from conflict to conflict resolution. In so doing, bring an honor, honor to your great name. I pray that for myself and I pray that for my brothers and sisters who are gathered here as well. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Will you please stand and sing with us?